I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, if you would, this morning, and we're going to complete what we started uh, last week on the disciples' pattern of prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. In uh, Philip Yancey's book, Prayer, Does It Make Any Difference?, he quotes a woman named Judy Morford who expressed the nature of true prayer as a longing of the heart. In her words, her own words, she tells of the changes that her prayer life has undergone through the years. She writes, as a young mother, I had a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. And I found the only time I could really pray was literally in the middle of the night. If I woke up then, I would pray. And as the kids grew older, I began to get up at 4.30 in the morning to pray. I still don't have ideal conditions for regular prayer. As a mother of three teenagers and working full-time, I sometimes get too tired to pray, but most days I'm able to work in some time for quiet prayer. Now, because of my changing schedule over the years, I've asked myself, just what does God expect of me in my prayer life? The answer I come up with is he wants a love relationship. He doesn't want a hired servant. He wants a bride. A true love will always find a way. It may not always be the same way or the prescribed way, but it will be a way that reflects love. That's what God wants from me. Now, you and I must find our own way to pray, not someone else's way to pray. As Yancey puts it, as life changes, my prayer practice will no doubt change with it. Every major life change will have its effect on prayer, both its practice and its content. The only fatal mistake is to stop praying and not begin again, unquote. Ben Patterson, who's formerly a chaplain at Westmont College in California, tells of a time when he ruptured a disc and the doctor prescribed six weeks of total bed rest for him. Heavily medicated and lying flat on his back, he found that reading was virtually impossible for him. And in that incapacitated state, he learned an important lesson about prayer. I was helpless, he said. I was also terrified. What was all this going to mean? How was I to take care of my family? What about the church? I was the only pastor that it had, and I could do nothing for it. Out of sheer desperation, he says, I decided to pray for the church. I opened the church directory and prayed for each member of the congregation daily. It took nearly two hours, but since there was nothing else to do for the, for the church, I figured I might as well pray for it. It was not piety that made me do it. It was boredom and frustration. He's an honest guy. But over the weeks, the prayer time grew sweet. And one day near the end of my convalescence, I was praying and I told the Lord, you know, Lord, it's been wonderful these prolonged times that we've spent together. 
It's too bad that I don't have time to do this when I'm well. Ben says, God's answer came swift and blunt. He said to me, Ben, you have just as much time when you're well as you do when you're sick. It's the same 24 hours in any case. The trouble with you is, is that when you're well, you think you're in charge. When you're sick, you know you're not. There's a lot to learn when it comes to prayer, isn't there? Learning to pray, like learning to talk, read, or walk, says Philip Yancey, takes time and involves trial and error. The process will doubtless include feelings of awkwardness and failure. Like grammar, the rules of prayer have the ultimate goal of making it a natural act. Fortunately, we have many mentors in the process and many resources to draw from not the least of which is the primary teaching of our Lord and Savior himself to his disciples, right? The disciples were in all likelihood pretty well schooled, at least in the Jewish prayers of their day. Yet somehow they saw something new in Jesus' approach to prayer that caused them to seek his help. In um, Luke chapter 11, remember, when they saw Jesus praying, they said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. And because of their curiosity now, we have benefited greatly from that, haven't we? Because this is what Jesus' response was. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In Jesus' recorded words here, we find a God-breathed pattern after which our prayers can be modeled. And last time, I spent the entire time with the first point of all of this, and that is our priority here is to admire, acknowledge, and adore the nature of our Father. That's what we learned last week. And how on earth do we do that? Well, last time we saw that we did it by a number of sub-points that I gave you. First of all, by respecting the uniqueness of His fatherhood or paternity, our father. And we spent a great deal of time about what that means to call our father, our father. Secondly, by regarding the prominence of his position, our father who art in heaven. And then by revering his preeminence, the preeminence of his person, hallowed be thy name. Recognizing the precedence of his program was the next thing we saw, thy kingdom come, and being resolved to the accomplishment of his purposes, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All of that is wrapped up in the first part of this pattern of prayer that our priority is to admire and acknowledge and adore the nature of our Father. But secondly, Jesus teaches us that subsequent to that first priority, to admire and acknowledge and adore 
the nature of our Father, comes the second part of this pattern of prayer that Jesus taught us, is that our petition is to address the needs of the family. Okay? That's verses 11 through 13. Our petition is to address the needs of the family. It's only after we have a proper focus on the nature of our Father that we can come to him with the needs of the family. Notice how it begins in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So we can come to him with the needs of the family. Now I say family because this is not a self-oriented prayer, is it? I mean, read it. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray not only for themselves, but for the needs of others as well. Notice what it says. Give us this day. Forgive us our debts. Deliver us from evil. An old German theologian, Helmut Thielicke, pointed out that the whole of life is captured in the rainbow of these requests. He observed that great things and small things, spiritual things and material things, inward things and outward things, there is nothing that is not included in this prayer. Unquote. But even in addressing the needs of the family, our focus of attention is still on who? The Father. It's on God. Watch how this plays out. Okay? The first thing we do in verse 11, Jesus taught us to pray, is that we rely on his providence. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus wasn't literally asking us to pray about the possible trip to the grocery store here, was he? He was pointing us in the direction of childlike dependence upon him, upon God for everything that we need to live on a daily basis. We can pray for food. We can pray for a job to support our families financially, good health, clothing, housing, etc., 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 it is an expression of dependence upon God as our Father. Every single day, enough for the next day. Is that right? Because the word translated daily here, give us this day our daily bread, it actually baffled scholars for many, many years. This is the only place, mark this now, it's the only place that this particular word appears in or out of the Bible, in the ancient texts. The only place, this particular word. And then a few years ago, an archaeologist dug up a piece of papyrus that contained, believe it or not, a housewife's shopping list. In the margin, next to some of the items that she had listed, the woman had scribbled the same word that's used here, meaning enough for the coming day. Enough for the coming day. We have a hard time remembering that in our society, don't we? You know what this came, became really apparent to me is when many times that I've been over to Scotland, to visit my, my son over there. Because their refrigerators are about that high. 
and about that big. And you go to the store and you shop for the day. You don't hoard it. You don't put it in freezers that are chest freezers, right? And, and the kind that you pull out the bottom drawer and you've got a month's worth of meat frozen in there. That's not the way it works over there, although now it is because we, you know, Americans have encroached upon them. But it's, it's a daily thing. You go to the market daily, pretty much. Now, as affluent Americans, we don't really depend upon God on a daily basis, do we? We have freezers full of food and closets full of clothes. We don't consciously wait on God or trust him to supply our daily needs, do we? If we need something, most likely we flash the plastic. We write a check. We call the bank. We sign on the dotted line. However, in Jesus' day, when he taught his disciples this way of praying, those needs were very different than ours, weren't they? A person worked for a day's wage and bought a day's food, a day's worth of food. It was one day at a time. Now, a reformed alcoholic may understand more readily what Jesus is getting at here because they live by that principle one day at a time. How do you think you'd survive if you had no idea if tomorrow you would eat or you would work? How would I approach that? How would you approach it? How much do most of us really depend upon God in our current lifestyle? Really? Is it a conscious dependence? On a day-to-day -day basis? Kenneth Bailey writes that one of the deepest and most crippling fears of the human spirit is the fear of not having enough to eat. He says, perhaps in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for release from that fear. That at the heart of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches his disciples a prayer that means this. Deliver us, O Lord, from the fear of not having enough to eat. Give us bread for today, and with it, give us the confidence that tomorrow we will have enough. The writer of Proverbs 31 seems to understand what a daily dependence upon God, God's providence does for one's character development. If you want to look at it, it's in Proverbs chapter 30 and verses 7 through 9. Should be our prayer, actually. Proverbs 30, verses 7 and 9 says this, Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. But give me neither poverty nor riches. But give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Back in the years of Bible college, my wife and I learned something about this, if even just a tidbit of the truth of this prayer. And I might add, God always answered that prayer. 
One of our primary verses of encouragement to us at that time was the blessing the Apostle Paul pronounced upon the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, which says, And my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. According to his riches in glory. You know how big that is? How much that is? And it still is. That still is an encouragement. I once read an interesting illustration of this. Each football season, the Texas Longhorns play the Oklahoma Sooners in the Red River Shootout. Okay? It's played in the neutral city of Dallas. Thousands of fans from each team invade the city to witness the clash between these two arch rivals. Sometimes the clash extends beyond the playing field. One year, a scuffle broke out in the stands and a handful of men were arrested and taken downtown. To avoid jail, they had to pay a $250 fine. And one fan didn't have the money. All he had, besides his driver's license, was his Neiman Marcus credit card. He showed the card to the judge, who said, you can't pay a fine with that. You're spending the weekend in jail, buddy. So when the man got to make his one phone call, he didn't call his wife, he didn't call his lawyer. He called the Neiman Marcus store and told them his story. Somehow this story made its way up the company ladder until a Neiman Marcus vice president said this, quote, this guy is one of our customers. We're going to help him out. And they paid his fine and charged his card. <laughs> now here's the point. If Neiman Marcus could be loyal to a customer, can we possibly imagine or believe that maybe, just maybe, our father who is in heaven could be loyal to one of his children? Do you think? And by the way, God won't charge our credit card. God will provide. He is a loyal father. That's why the Bible calls him Jehovah Jireh. Or more accurately, Yahweh Yireh. Yahweh will provide is what this is saying. It was literally a place, not just a principle. It was the location of the land of Moriah in the binding of Isaac where God told Abraham to offer up his son Isaac as a burnt offering. Abraham named the place after the Lord provided a ram to sacrifice in place of Isaac. Genesis twenty-two fourteen 14 says this, and Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Or literally, the Lord will see to it. And you know that was a prophecy, right? Because the Lord did see to it when Jesus went to the cross and God provided a lamb for our salvation. See, we pray to a father who will provide. 
We depend upon a Lord who will see to it. Not Visa, not the credit union, not Neiman Marcus, but God. We depend upon God our Father. That doesn't mean that we can quit working and just let God do all the work. But it does recognize that everything that we have, every penny, every crumb of food, every thread of clothing, and especially every ounce of our eternal salvation is only because God provided it. Amen? Don't ever forget that. Dallas Willard brings our attention to the real point of concern here. He says, what hinders or shuts down kingdom living is not the having of such provisions, but rather the trusting in them for future security. We have no real security for the future in them, but only in the God who is present with us every single day. Amen? There is so much more contained in this simple portion of this prayer than we could possibly unearth in this short time. As Ken Bailey insightfully points out again, in this petition, we're asking for bread, not cake. There is a clear focus on needs, not necessarily on luxuries. We're asking for that which sustains life, not all of its extras. There is no hint of consumerism in Jesus' instruction as to how we should pray, is there? Also of no small significance is the fact that we are asking for our daily bread, not mine. See that? This is especially striking to me here. I once read of an experience which Mother Teresa of Calcutta recorded from her life ministering to the poor of that region that arrested her own soul. This is what she wrote. She wrote, I will never forget the night an old gentleman came to our house and said that there was a family with eight children and they had not eaten. And could we do something for them? So I took some rice and I went there. And the mother took the rice from my hands and then she divided it into two parts and went out. And I could see the faces of the children shining with hunger. When she came back, I asked her where she had gone, and she gave me a very simple answer. They are hungry also, she said. And they were the family next door. And she knew that they were hungry. Mother Teresa says, I had not the courage to ask how long her family hadn't eaten, but I'm sure it must have been a long, long time, judging from the looks of them. And yet she knew that woman knew, even in the midst of her own suffering, in her terrible bodily suffering, she knew that the next door neighbors were hungry also. One author comments, this woman with eight children may not have known the Lord's prayer, but there was only our rice, not my rice, even when her children were hungry. You see, the prayer for our bread includes our neighbors, doesn't it? Not just ourselves. Not just our family. It is our Father and our bread that we pray for. It's not just our physical needs either that we must depend upon God to supply from day to day, but our deep spiritual needs as well. And so, not only do we rely on his provision, but we request his pardon. 
Look at verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Verse 14. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. I remember reading a comic strip in the newspaper some years ago that depicted a psychologist listening to a patient. Mr. Figby, the doctor says, I think I can explain all of your feelings of guilt. You're guilty. That simple. All of us are guilty of sin, aren't we? No one is perfect. We all need forgiveness and we all need compassion. It's obvious that forgiveness is an important focus of this prayer for it's repeated six times in four verses. As those who have received the gift of salvation through faith in Christ, we have been forgiven once for all time. Amen? The debt has been paid in full, Jesus said. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says, You were dead because of your sins, and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. But then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all, mark that word, all our sins. He canceled the record that contained the charges against us and he took it and he destroyed it by nailing it to Christ's cross. We are forgiven. But in terms of maintaining daily fellowship with God, we need to be constantly seeking forgiveness and constantly sharing forgiveness, don't we? But as we confess our guilt and seek forgiveness, we also need to consider how we've forgiven others. To pray for our own forgiveness as Jesus instructs us here while simultaneously nursing a grudge against someone else is to ask God to bear a grudge against us. You see that? The prayer says, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. So if we're bearing a grudge, what we're literally praying is, God, you can bear a grudge against us. What we're actually saying here when we pray that prayer, in essence, is this. God, deal with me in the same way that I deal with others. Now let me ask, how many of you would want to pray that prayer right now? And yet I've done it before, right? And you have too. How many of us would want God to deal with us in the same way we're dealing with our ungrateful spouse or your angry neighbor or your cocky boss or your rebellious teenager? If you're not willing to forgive someone, how in the world can you ask God to forgive you? Matthew chapter 18. Verse 21, follow with me as I read this extended passage. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of 
heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he said, seized, he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe me. So this fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling, and he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And, this, and his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Jesus says, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. You see, our forgiving others doesn't cause God to forgive us. Don't, don't misread what Jesus is saying there. It shows that we understand the nature of God's forgiveness in our own heart and we have entered into that ourselves and that his divine forgiveness is evident in our lives by its reflection toward others, right? Luke's gospel captures this understanding very well. In Luke chapter 11, verse 4, parallel passage to this in Matthew 6, says, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. You know what it is? It's the famous platinum rule. You've heard of the golden rule, right? The platinum rule says this, Do unto others as God has done unto you. Right? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32 is where you find it. Paul writes, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. A minister parked his car in a no-parking zone once in a large city because he was short of time and he actually couldn't find a space with a meter. So he put a note under the windshield wiper that read like this, I have circled the block ten times. If I don't park here, I'm going to miss my appointment. Forgive us our trespasses. <laughs> so when he returned... He found a parking citation from a police officer, a ticket. Attached to the ticket was this note. I've circled this block for 10 years. If I don't give you a ticket, I'll lose my job. Lead us not into temptation. <laughs> Jesus teaches us another element of need here. Is that we remember his protection. 
We remember his protection in verse 13 and do not lead us into temptation. I read a good line the other day. It was something printed on a t-shirt. It says, lead me not into temptation. I can find it myself. And that's true, isn't it? There's no question about it. You and I need to pray this prayer. And interpreting this petition as Jesus gives it is difficult to say the least. It's not that God tempts us, right? God doesn't tempt us. According to James, he says that it's impossible, James 1.13, says God doesn't tempt anyone. The fact is we flirt with temptation. We can find it ourselves, can't we? We flirt with it. We we play with it and we put ourselves in positions that we know we shouldn't be in. And the actual implication of the original language seems to be here that we are asking God not to allow us to be overwhelmed by temptation to the point that we are snared by the evil one. That's really what this petition is saying. In essence, it's praying, oh Lord, hold us back and do not let us take that path. But if we're stupid enough to walk right up to the devil and expose to him our weakest area, then why bother to pray for deliverance? Just avoid that street. Because God gives us the way of escape, doesn't he? We need to avoid temptation to the best of our ability and pray that when it does come, that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle, but deliver us from the devil's trap. And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And you and I know that that's the case, don't we? Whenever we're tempted, we go through the whole rationalization thing in our minds, don't we? And God's providing the way of escape right in front of us, and we're like doing this to it. Don't show me that way. That one's too hard to take. It's easier just to give in to the temptation. The New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology suggests that this petition really is an appeal to God to, quote, preserve us from apostasy or the test that would lead to it, unquote. And that phrase is an expression of the confidence of an earthly pilgrim traveling with a divine guide. What we're saying is our journey, rife with trials and dangers, compels us to pray on a daily basis, Lord, we trust you to guide us because you alone know the way that we must go. So take us there. And Jesus has been there already, hasn't he? Being tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, according to Hebrews 4. Read Matthew chapter 4, just a few chapters back in first 11 verses, all about the temptation of Christ and how he dealt with that. Behind this whole petition is the fact that we must admit that we are incredibly weak and the devil is incredibly strong, but also that God is stronger and always available to us. Amen? 
As the psalmist said, God is our refuge and strength and a very present help in time of trouble. Psalm 46, 1. And so we rely on his providence. We request his pardon. We remember his protection. And finally, we rest in his power. We rest in his power. Verse 13, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, some of you have Bibles that uh, shows this. You'll notice that that phrase there is probably in brackets in your Bible, which indicates that they were not written in some of the best manuscripts that the translators have available to them. And so although these words may not have been part necessarily of Jesus' original teaching on prayer, and they may have been added later on, it nevertheless is a fitting capstone to the entire focus of this petition. Because it begins and it ends with our Father. The Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. Our Father is the bookends to this whole entire prayer. The be-all, the end-all. The hearts and minds of Matthew's audience, being primarily Jewish, would have recognized this as an appropriate crescendo of praise for God's eternal preeminence in all things. They are strikingly reminiscent of David's worshipful words in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. And that's why I think it's okay that they're there because they're scriptural, they're biblical, and they bring out the essence of what Jesus taught us to pray. 1 Chronicles 29, and you're going to marvel at the similarity between these words and what's written in Matthew 6. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11. This is David's prayer, beginning in verse 10. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly, and David said this. Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and on earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Isn't that exactly what those words in Matthew 6 basically say? You see, true prayer, according to Jesus' example, is a preoccupation with God and his glory, and it follows a very, very simple pattern that Jesus gave to us right here. Our priority is to admire the nature of our Father, to acknowledge it, to adore it. So we respect his paternity, we regard his position, we revere his preeminence, we recognize his program, and we are resolved to his purposes. 
But true prayer is also our expression of dependence on God as his children because our petition is to address the needs of the family as we rely upon his providence, as we request his pardon, as we remember his protection, and as we rest in his power. So, let's make this prayer our personal pattern of prayer, shall we? Because that's what Jesus taught us to do. Because in the words of an anonymous author, I cannot say our if I only live for myself. I cannot say father if I do not endeavor each day to act like his child. I cannot say who art in heaven if I'm not laying up any treasure there. I cannot say hallowed be thy name if I'm not striving for holiness in my own life. I cannot say thy kingdom come if I'm not doing all in my power to hasten that wonderful event. I can't say, thy will be done if I'm disobedient to his word. I cannot say on earth as it is in heaven if I'll not serve him here and now. I cannot say, give us this day our daily bread if I'm dishonest or, or I'm seeking things by subterfuge. I cannot say, forgive us our debts if I harbor a grudge against anyone. And I cannot say lead us not into temptation if I deliberately place myself in its path. I cannot say thine is the kingdom if I do not give the king the loyalty due him from a faithful subject. He is king. I cannot say the power if I fear only what men can do but do not fear God. I cannot say the glory if I'm seeking honor for only myself. And I cannot say forever if the horizon of my life is only completely bound by time and what I see now. So let's not do that, but let's do this, what Jesus taught us to pray. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father in heaven, you are holy. We love you, we adore you, we worship you. We ask you that you would provide for our needs on a daily basis. That you forgive us our trespasses and sins. We know you have through Jesus Christ. But Lord, keep us daily, forever cognizant of the fact that because we've received such an immense amount of forgiveness that we can issue that to others as well which proves that we know yours. And deliver us, Lord God, from the evil one. Do not let us succumb to his temptations and deny your name. And I pray, our Father, above all things, that we recognize and worship and adore you on the basis of the fact that yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.